Hello, fellow teachers, and welcome to Teaching with Power. This is Ben Wilcox, and I'm humbled and grateful that you've taken the time to join me in your scripture study or your lesson prep today. It's hard to believe, but we have reached the final chapter of the Book of Mormon together. Moroni chapter 10 is where we're going to focus our study today, and there is much to discuss, even though it's just one chapter. And whether you've been on this journey with me since January, or this is your first time on the channel, I hope that you'll feel the power of the scriptures today. My purpose in making these lessons is not only to give you insight into the scriptures, but also to provide you with methods and materials that will help you to teach that insight to other people in relevant and meaningful ways. So for lesson plans, PowerPoint slides, handouts that I make, go to teachingwithpower.com and you'll find links to those resources. Now this podcast is actually the audio to my videos that I produce on my YouTube channel, Teaching with Power. So if you hear me referring to visuals and you'd like to see what I'm referring to, I encourage you to check out the video presentation on YouTube. But now, I invite you to grab your scriptures and your marking pencils. It's time to dig deep. Now, near the beginning of the chapter, in verse 2, Moroni tells us that he has a few words of exhortation for us. Exhort is a word that we don't really use much nowadays, but it means to strongly encourage or urge to do something. So, it's not just encouragement, it's strong encouragement. Today we're going to study the things that Moroni strongly encourages us to do at the conclusion of our study of the Book of Mormon. So keep your eyes open for the I exhort use or I would exhort use. That phrase comes up a number of times, but I lump them into four major exhortations. His first comes in verses 3 through 7, the verses known as Moroni's Promise. And we talked about those verses in depth last week as we compared this method of gaining a testimony of the Book of Mormon with another one that's found in Moroni chapter 7. Here he exhorts us to read, remember, ponder, and ask God with a sincere heart, real intent, and faith if these things are true. Then he promises that the Holy Ghost will manifest the truth of it unto us. I believe and know that this is a meaningful and effective way of gaining a testimony of the Book of Mormon. And if you'd like a more in-depth treatment of those verses, I encourage you to check out last week's video from Moroni chapter 7 through 9. But it's the second exhortation that I'd really like to focus on for a bit here. It's found in verses 8 through 19. And for an icebreaker, I like to do the following object lesson. It takes a little time to prepare, but I found that the effort is well worth it. Find a large box and wrap it up like a present. And ideally, it's best to find a box with a lid that you can remove. But having your students unwrap the present could work too and, and might be fun. For me, that's not as practical because I teach multiple classes in a day and need to reset the object lesson. But what you do is you place the present at the front of the classroom and ask the following question. What's the best Christmas or birthday gift you've ever received? And then allow them to share. And then I might ask, why do we give gifts to each other? My answer, because we like to show others that we love and care about them and we like making them happy. 
Well, our Heavenly Father also loves to give gifts to his children. But rather than sending us electronics or jewelry or toys, he gives us spiritual gifts, our abilities, characteristics. And these are referred to as the gifts of the Spirit. And at this point, I turn the gift around to show a label on the gift that says the Spirit or the Holy Ghost. This is the source or power by which all the gifts operate. The big gift, the gift of the Holy Ghost. And how perfect is it that this lesson comes right at Christmas time, where gift giving and receiving is at the forefront of our minds. And there are three major places in the scriptures where you're going to find teachings on the gifts of the Spirit. If you've been studying with me since last year, some of this material is going to sound familiar to you because we talked about gifts of the Spirit back in 1 Corinthians 12 in the New Testament. And we'll be talking about it again in a couple of months in Doctrine and Covenants 46. And then you have what Moroni teaches about spiritual gifts here in Moroni chapter 10. Each of these chapters teach similar truths about spiritual gifts, but each of them also has some unique things to offer. Today, Moroni is going to teach us six different truths about spiritual gifts. And as a teacher, I would give my students the following study guide and allow them some personal time in class to discover the answers to those six questions on their own. And then you could discuss their answers together as a class. So let's take a look at those six questions. And heads up, for the sake of the flow of the principles, you'll notice that I don't quite follow the same order that they come in the scriptures. Question number one, who is given spiritual gifts? Answer, everybody. Nobody is left out. There is not a single person out there who has not been given a special gift from God that is uniquely theirs. They come to every man severally according as he will. To come severally means that they come individually or each in turn. Every person is given an individual gift from our Father in Heaven. Now, I'm a very visual learner, so I kind of picture it like this, although granted this is not doctrinal. But I imagine a large line of spirits in the pre-existence waiting for their turn to be born into mortality here on earth. Just before they leave, though, Heavenly Father is standing there at the head of the line with a large bag of gifts next to him. Now, they're not given out randomly, but each has the recipient's name written in beautiful calligraphy across the top. Each gift has been lovingly prepared and tailored to the specific needs of that individual. So with a gift in his hand, he hands it to them and says, this is a special unique gift just for you from me. Please treasure and respect it. It will bring great blessings to you and others throughout your life. And he carefully hands it to them and off they go to mortality. I also picture each gift being wrapped differently and in different shapes and sizes. But everybody gets a gift. And at this point, I sometimes like to add this question as well. Is there any way to know for certain what gift or gifts your Heavenly Father has given to you? And there is. Your patriarchal blessing will more often than not 
tell you what some of your gifts are. Another reason to get a patriarchal blessing if you haven't gotten one yet. Question number two, where do they come from? If there was a big tag hanging off the side, who would it say they are from? Verse 8, they come from the same God. And then in verse 18, every good gift cometh of Christ. So the tag says, from your father, God, and your older brother, Jesus Christ. And for this, I would actually make a little gift tag that says, from God and Jesus, and have it hanging off the side. Leading us to question number three, how many gifts are there? Answer, verse 8, they are many. There are many different kinds of spiritual gifts that God can give. Not everybody gets the same thing. So in verses 9 through 16, he lists what some of those gifts are. And during this section of the lesson, I open up the big gift at the front of the room, and I start pulling out little wrapped gifts or nesting boxes that I have inside. And each one is labeled with one of these gifts. So it says that some are given the gift of teaching the word of wisdom. And that's not referring to what we call the word of wisdom or the church's law of health, but wisdom in general, the gift of teaching. Others are given the gift to teach knowledge, which I think is interesting that there's a distinction there. Knowledge as opposed to wisdom. Uh, knowledge is facts, understanding, uh, maybe even secular truth. But wisdom, I believe, is the application of knowledge or the wise use of spiritual truth. Some are more gifted in teaching one than the other, but both are important. More gifts. Some have exceedingly great faith. I know of people like that, that just seem to have an innate sense of profound faith. No questions or doubts in their testimony. They just know certain things. Then some other gifts mentioned here. The gift of healing, working mighty miracles, prophesying, the beholding of angels and ministering spirits, the gift of tongues, and the interpretation of tongues. Now that's a lot of different gifts. But is that all of them? No. I usually like to share the following two quotes. First from Elder McConkie. Spiritual gifts are endless in number and infinite in variety. Those listed in the revealed word are simply illustrations of the boundless outpouring of divine grace that a gracious God gives those who love and serve him. And then also from uh, Marvin J. Ashton, taken at random, let me mention a few gifts that are not always evident or noteworthy, but that are very important. The gift of asking, the gift of listening, the gift of hearing and using a still small voice, the gift of being able to weep, the gift of avoiding contention, the gift of being agreeable, the gift of avoiding vain repetition, the gift of seeking that which is righteous, the gift of not passing judgment, the gift of looking to God for guidance, the gift of being a disciple, the gift of caring for others, the gift of being able to ponder, the gift of offering prayer, the gift of bearing a mighty testimony, 
and the gift of receiving the Holy Ghost. So you can see that there are lots of different gifts out there that God could possibly give you. So question number four, how are the gifts administered? Answer, in different ways. Paul put it this way in 1 Corinthians 12. Now there are diversities of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are differences of administrations, but the same Lord. And there are diversities of operations. But it is the same God which worketh all in all. So different ways, differences of administrations, diversities of operations. What does all that mean? I think it means that there are many different manifestations of the spiritual gifts. So somebody may have the gift of tongues, but there are lots of different ways the gift of tongues could be manifest, different ways that it's administered. A very rare manifestation of that gift would be the ability to speak in the Adamic language. Another manifestation would be the ability to speak a language that you've never learned before. That happened to the early apostles on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. Perhaps another manifestation would be an increased ability to learn to speak another language with ease and accuracy. Missionaries serving foreign missions seek for and appreciate that gift. And those are the manifestations that usually come to mind when we talk about the gift of tongues. But could there be others? Remember, Elder McConkie said that they're endless and infinite in variety. Maybe it doesn't always have to do with foreign languages. Perhaps another manifestation could be the ability to speak eloquently and skillfully in your own language. Another could be the ability to speak in a motivating and inspiring way. And yet another could be the gift to write in a powerful way. The brother of Jared apparently had that gift. I know that my father was confused for some time when he received his patriarchal blessing and he was told that he had the gift of tongues. And it troubled him when in high school French classes and while serving his mission, he didn't really feel like the language came any easier to him than anybody else. But when he returned from his mission and explored the option of teaching in the seminary and institute program for the church, he discovered that he had an innate ability to speak beautifully and powerfully about the scriptures. He has a gift for it. I believe that's his manifestation of the gift of tongues. I know of a young woman whose patriarchal blessing told her that she had the gift of healing. And since she couldn't give priesthood blessings, she felt she should go into medicine as a career. But she soon found out that she really wasn't that interested in working in the medical field. Her passion wasn't there. But she didn't want to neglect her spiritual gift. Well, all she really needed was a brief explanation of this principle, that there are many different ways in which the gifts are administered. One manifestation of the gift of healing is the ability to heal through priesthood blessings. And another would be to have the gift for healing people as a doctor or a nurse. I would imagine President Nelson has that gift. But could there be any others? How about emotional healing? 
spiritual healing. And as soon as this was explained to her, she thought back on her life and reflected on the fact that people often came to her for help when they were struggling. And she was always able to counsel and comfort those individuals and make them feel better. That was her manifestation of the gift of healing. Now, while I'm teaching this principle, I open up some of the smaller gifts that I have wrapped and reveal that there are even smaller gifts inside of them, labeled with some of these manifestations that we've just talked about here. Moving on, question number five. What is the purpose of the gifts? According to verse eight, they are given to profit them, to bless and to help them. In the New Testament, Paul uses the word edify, and in the Doctrine and Covenants, the word is benefit. The gifts are given to profit, edify, and benefit us. But is it all about us? Are they given just to bless and profit the receiver or us as individuals? No, God doesn't want us to use our gifts selfishly or to draw attention to ourselves. Doctrine and Covenants 46.9 says, For verily I say unto you, they are given for the benefit of those who love me and keep all my commandments, and him that seeketh so to do, that all may be benefited, that seek or that ask of me, that ask and not for a sign that they may consume it upon their lusts. And then 46.12, To some is given one, and to some is given another, that all may be profited thereby. We're not meant to use our gifts to consume them upon our own lusts, our own pride, our ego, or our selfishness. If we're developing and using our gifts to bring glory to ourselves rather than God or the church, then I believe that we'll see their power diminished. We're given the gifts so that all may be profited. This is a joint effort, a team effort, each player contributing in their specific role with their unique gifts. Like a soccer team, you have a goalie, forwards, sweepers, those that excel on defense, and those that excel on offense. It's not desirable to have everyone with the exact same skill set. But working together with their combined efforts, they're able to accomplish their goals. In 1 Corinthians 12, Paul really goes into that idea. He compares the members of the church to a body, and each body part has a vital function to perform, something that only it can do. And all the body parts work together for the benefit of all. Every member has their place and unique contribution to make. Yes, the gifts do profit us as individuals, but more importantly, they profit the church as a whole. No member need feel like they're unimportant or unneeded in Christ's church. That's also why it's such a tragedy when somebody leaves the church or becomes less active. The church or ward loses the unique abilities and gifts that that person has to offer. Somebody may come to the conclusion that they don't need church or that they don't need organized religion. And you know what? They may be right. They may be able to get by and live worthily and maintain their faith without the church. But I would say, what has that got to do with anything? We don't go to church just for us and our needs. 
but for the benefit of all. The church needs you. It's at least as great a tragedy that the church has lost them as it is that they have lost the church. Our gifts profit all. Question number six. How long will the gifts last? In verse 19, they never will be done away as long as the world shall stand. So apparently gifts of the Spirit have a very long shelf life, at least as long as the earth shall stand. Also, they will only remain as long as we believe in them. Apparently, we can lose them according to our unbelief. And then I've added a bonus question here. There's one more particular truth that I feel needs to be covered. It's not taught in Moroni 7, but feel it's important enough to include here. Is it okay to seek for more gifts? Maybe I don't have the gift of healing, or tongues, or discernment, or exceedingly great faith. But I want them. I feel I need them. Do I just sit back and resign myself to the gifts I've already been given? We know that we're not supposed to aspire to certain positions or callings in the church. But is it okay to aspire to additional gifts that you feel you need? And the answer comes in Doctrine and Covenants 46.8. Wherefore, beware lest ye are deceived, and that ye may not be deceived. Seek ye earnestly the best gifts, always remembering for what they are given. So yes, I can seek for more. In fact, it's encouraged. I should seek diligently for them. We can add to our innate gifts with additional ones. And I'll give you an example of this. Personally, I don't believe that I was born with the gift of teaching. I really don't. Not like my father, who I feel is naturally gifted as a teacher. But when I left for my mission, and since then, I have really desired to become a better and more effective teacher. I really want that gift. And so I've worked at it, and I've sought for it diligently in prayer, and I've tried to learn skills and techniques and study and practice, and I've sought help from others that I consider to be masters of teaching. And through my efforts and the grace of my Heavenly Father, I feel I've been able to attain a certain measure of that gift. Gifts can come through our earnest seeking. And we can all do this no matter who we are or what gifts we've already been blessed with. And then you might want to go over some of the answers your students gave on the personal application questions. And those are the following. How have you been blessed by the spiritual gifts of others? And then, how have your own spiritual gifts blessed you and the people around you? And what gift of the Spirit would you most like to receive? And what are you willing to do to show that you are ready for that gift? Well, isn't our Father in Heaven generous? He's endowed each of us with individualized gifts and abilities that only we can offer. You are gifted. We're all gifted individuals. And since it's Christmas and gifts are already on our minds, I invite you to ask for a different kind of gift this year. Just like when you were kids and there was that present that we wanted more than anything else and 
We asked and asked for it, and on Christmas morning, ran to the tree, eagerly hoping to see it there. Perhaps we can do something similar with a gift of the Spirit. What do you want most this year? Go ahead and ask for it. And if you're believing, those gifts, I believe, will be forthcoming. And like a good parent, our Heavenly Father loves to give His children gifts. Well, our third area of exhortation. A brief thought here from verses 20 through 29. He says a few more words reminiscent of Moroni 7 about faith, hope, and charity, but then speaks directly to us. I said last week that the book of Moroni gives us two ways that we can come to know if the Book of Mormon is true. Well, that wasn't entirely accurate. There is one more way that we can come to know the truthfulness of the Book of Mormon, and it's right here on the final page. Can you discover what it is in verses 27 through 29? How else can I come to know? Moroni himself can show us. If we've been unbelieving, if we've dismissed the restored gospel and the Book of Mormon, then one day we will stand at the judgment bar of God and he'll present Moroni to us. Can you picture that? Jesus looks at us and says, you didn't believe in the Book of Mormon, right? Well, there's somebody I'd like you to meet. Moroni, come over here. And here comes Moroni, this powerful warrior of a man. And he walks over and stands right next to Jesus. And then Jesus says, Did I not declare my words unto you, which were written by this man? Like as one crying from the dead, yea, even as one speaking out of the dust? That's a bit of an intimidating visual, isn't it? What could we say in those circumstances? Could we deny then? Could we claim that the Book of Mormon was fiction in that setting? Verse 29, And God shall show unto you that that which I have written is true. Well, that's another way we can come to know the Book of Mormon is true. We can have Jesus and Moroni prove its truthfulness by standing in front of us and declaring it. Eventually, everyone is going to have a testimony or knowledge of the truthfulness of the Book of Mormon. The question is, which way would you prefer to come to that knowledge? The judge by the light of Christ, if it persuadeth you to do good way? The read, ponder, and pray way? Or the way described here, declared to you by Moroni himself and Christ at the judgment? Um, I think I prefer to find out in one of the first two ways. And we'll come back to this idea of meeting Moroni a little later because he's going to bring it up again. Moving on to Moroni's final exhortation, verses 30 through 34. And at the conclusion of his record, what do you imagine his final invitation is going to be about? He's invited us to come to know that the Book of Mormon is true. He's invited us to embrace and seek for the gifts of God. He's invited us to contemplate our experience at the final judgment. And now, his final exhortation. And usually in writing or speaking, your final words are what you consider to be the most important, 
what you want the most to remember. And what you're going to find here is a formula. Now, formula is a math word. And I'll be honest with you, I hated math in school. I liked history, I liked biology, literature, PE, almost everything else, but not math. In my mind, math was created by Satan himself. I always struggled, and it always took me the most time, and it was by far the most frustrating thing for me. But I stuck with it, and I got all the way through calculus in high school. And I even signed up for AP Calculus my senior year. However, I went in the first day, listened to the teacher explain the curriculum, and promptly went to my school counselor and changed my schedule. And you know what? I've never looked back. That was the last time I ever set foot in a math class. And you know what? I really have no regrets about that. Good riddance to it. But uh, if there was one bright spot in my math experience, it would be formulas. Formulas are kind of cool. When you can just plug the numbers in and they spit out the answer. That's the kind of math that I could handle. Well, for an icebreaker, let's see if you can recognize these famous formulas and what they are for. So the first one, A equals L times W. That's the formula for discovering the area of a rectangle. Area equals length times width. Well, here's another one. A equals pi times r squared. That's the formula for discovering the area of a circle. Pi times the radius squared. Next one. A squared plus b squared equals c squared. And that's what's called the Pythagorean theorem that says that the square of the hypotenuse of a right triangle will always equal the sum of the squares of the other two sides. And that theorem can be helpful when it comes to surveying, navigation, uh, and construction. Let's try another one. E equals mc squared. And that's Einstein's theory of relativity. Probably the most famous formula in history. And uh, that helps scientists to understand the relationship between energy, mass, and the speed of light. And you know, by the way, why are they always squaring things in math? Uh, what, is, what does that do, anyway? It almost seems like they just throw that in there to make it sound more complicated and, and mathy. But I don't know. I guess that's why I'm teaching seminary. But let's try one more out. F minus E plus V equals 2. And that, of course, is Euler's formula for polyhedra. And what's its purpose? I have absolutely no idea, but a website I looked at said it was important, and so it must be. And I'm sure that somebody much smarter than me out there could probably explain why that is significant. So let's put the mathematical formulas behind us and do some calculating that I can handle a little bit better. Let's take a look at a spiritual formula, a gospel formula. Moroni gives us a powerful one here in verses 30 through 34. And this is how I would express that formula. And as a teacher, I would put this up on the board and then spend the lesson discovering and filling in the meaning. And I begin by asking what the C and the P stand for. 
which I think are the two most important terms. And let's start with the P. You'll find that term in verses 32 and 33. And the term is perfection. I'm sure that most of you are familiar with the charge that the Savior made in the Sermon on the Mount and the Sermon at Bountiful to be ye therefore perfect, even as I, or your Father which is in heaven is perfect. And that verse has given a lot of Christians fits over the years. It seems like such an impossible request, an impossible problem to solve. How could I ever be perfect? And we did discuss the meaning of that charge back in 3 Nephi and particularly examined Doctrine and Covenants 76-69 as an aid to understanding it. However, these final verses of the Book of Mormon also help us to understand how such a request could even be possible. A formula that will help us to solve that problem. How do we arrive at perfection? We need to do C. And that stands for a three-word phrase that you're going to find in both verse 30 and 32. And the way I arrive at perfection is by coming unto Christ. I've got to make a commitment to follow the example and character of the Savior. That would be the simplest expression of this formula. We could write C equals P. Coming unto Christ will lead me to perfection. But Moroni wants to get a little more specific than that. It's going to be possible by doing the things found in the parentheses. And there we find that we first need to L. Lay hold upon every good gift. It's what we talked about last week. Seeking diligently for all the good and true things by using our judgment with the light of Christ and then laying hold upon and cleaving to those things. Also, not only am I going to lay hold upon the good things, I am going to T. Touch not the evil or the unclean things. So if there's an environment or activity or belief or book or movie or music that does not persuade me to do good and believe in Christ, then I'm going to touch it not. And that idea is reiterated in verse 32, where Moroni instructs us to deny ourselves of all ungodliness. I've got to do more than just look for the good. I've got to actively reject the bad. I can't accept both. No man can serve two masters. And verse 31 is a reiteration of both those ideas, but in poetic form. Moroni quotes Isaiah. Awake and arise from the dust, and put on thy beautiful garments, O daughter of Zion. To come unto Christ, I'm going to rise up from the dust of the world, from the unclean and the ungodly, because I am not a citizen of Babylon. I'm a citizen of Zion, and I don't want the dirt of the world on me. I'm going to brush it off. I'm going to take off the soiled clothing of the world and put on my beautiful garments. And what are the beautiful garments? Second Nephi 9.14 Being clothed with purity, yea, even with the robe of righteousness. We wear our righteousness. That's what will clothe us in the eternities. I'll be clothed with the good things that I've laid hold upon and done in my life. And then the next part of the formula. I will 
S. Strengthen thy stakes. I'll do this by serving valiantly in my callings as a member of Christ's church. I'm going to set a good example. I'm going to do everything I can to make the people of my ward and stake and community stronger. Then I'm going to E. Enlarge the borders of his kingdom as well. How do I enlarge the borders? I proclaim the gospel. I look for missionary opportunities. I do temple work for the dead. I do everything in my power to bring other souls to Christ, to make his church larger and stronger throughout the world. And throughout all of this, I'm going to L, love God with all my might, mind, and strength. How do I do that? John 14, 15. If ye love me, keep my commandments. I'm going to be obedient to every request and counsel that God gives me. I'm going to keep the law of chastity and the law of tithing and the law of sacrifice. I'm going to make covenants, fulfill his ordinances, and strive to follow the counsel of his prophets. If I do these things, then I can be perfected in him. I won't perfect myself. He'll do that part. He'll wash away my guilt, all of the I wish I hadn'ts and the I regrets and the I should haves, the I'm sorry's, the why didn't I's. And he will fill us with confidence and peace. That perfection will come through two things. So here's our other parentheses. That perfection comes through the G, grace of God, and the B, blood of Christ, which was shed through his atonement. And through the power of those things, I will be made perfect. So a few questions to consider asking. Which part of the equation do you need to work on? And do you believe in and trust the power of God's grace and Christ's atoning blood? And why? It's no surprise to me that the final exhortation of the Book of Mormon is a charge to become something. We've seen this theme all throughout the Book of Mormon. The importance of becoming even more than believing. And both ideas are covered in this final chapter, but the becoming is the capstone. I believe that if we fulfill this formula, if we work on it throughout our lives, then we'll be able to experience a different kind of meeting with Moroni than was described earlier. The final verse of the entire Book of Mormon is filled and infused with hope. And now I bid unto all farewell. I soon go to rest in the paradise of God until my spirit and body shall again reunite and I am brought forth triumphant through the air to meet you before the pleasing bar of the great Jehovah, the eternal judge of both quick and dead. Amen. I believe that if we've applied and lived this formula to the best of our ability, then we will have that kind of experience at the judgment. Such great descriptive words. Rest, triumphant, and pleasing. This is what the Book of Mormon was all about from the beginning. It was written so that we could be instructed on how to become perfected, so that in the end, our eternity could be one that is restful, 
triumphant, and pleasing. I want to be able to meet Moroni in that moment and say, I believed in your words. I am grateful for your words. Thank you for your incredible sacrifice to protect and bring me this record. I followed your counsel and came to a knowledge of the truthfulness of your writings and the writings of your father and the writings of all the Book of Mormon prophets. Their words have enriched my life beyond measure. Thank you, Moroni. Now that's the kind of experience that I want to have with him at what hopefully is the pleasing bar of God. I believe with all my heart that if we live the principles that we've studied and pondered and taught all year long, then our lives will have a Book of Mormon ending, a Moroni 1034 ending, rest, triumph, and pleasing. And that, my friends, is the Book of Mormon. We did it. You did it. We have spent this year digging deep together through the pages of this phenomenal book of Latter-day Scripture. We've sailed with Lehi and Nephi to the New World. We've prayed with Enos in the wilderness. We've sat at the feet of King Benjamin on his tower, repented with Alma the Younger, fought alongside the stripling warriors, looked up at Samuel the Lamanite on his wall, mourned with Mormon, and wandered the lonely wilderness with Moroni. Most importantly, we've witnessed the visit of Jesus Christ, heard his words, and felt of his one-by-one blessings. We have made friends in Scripture. And for me, this year is the deepest I've ever dug into the Book of Mormon. As I've prepared these videos and lessons and pondered the messages and insights that I felt most inspired to share with you. Now, I feel the best way for me to conclude this year's study would be to leave you with my personal witness of the truthfulness of the Book of Mormon. It's come to me in a number of different ways over the years. I believe that the Book of Mormon is true because I know that it's good. Every time I study it, it invites, it entices, and it persuades me to do good, to love God, and to believe in Christ. The light of Christ has made it plain for me to judge that it's good and that it's of God. The principles that it teaches make sense to me. They're practical, relevant, and inspiring. When I strive to live the principles taught by the Book of Mormon, my life is better, I'm happier, and I feel closer to heaven. And if that weren't witness enough, the Lord has also revealed the truth of it to me in the way that Moroni describes here in chapter 10, verses 3 through 5. Before my mission, I had been praying for years for a specific witness of the truthfulness of the Book of Mormon. I know I already had a testimony of it, but I was hoping for and praying for a powerful confirmation of its authenticity so that I could testify as a missionary with more strength. I vividly remember the night that that confirmation came. I wasn't even expecting it. My plea to God for that witness had just become a regular part of my prayers. But for some reason, that night was the night that the Lord chose to answer me. And after praying to know with a surety that the Book of Mormon was true, 
I heard within my mind and spirit the distinct words, it's real, spoken to me from some place other than my own mind. And that thought that it's all real, God, Jesus Christ, the Spirit, Nephi, King Benjamin, Moroni, they're real. That, that filled my soul with a joy and a burning and a power that I had never felt before. I opened my eyes almost expecting to see the room filled with light. I knew at that point that it was all real and true and good. And after that experience, I didn't think that it would be possible for my testimony to get any stronger than that. And yet it has. Much stronger. I have come to know more and more of the truthfulness of the Book of Mormon year after year of studying and pondering and teaching it. Line upon line and precept upon precept, my appreciation and understanding has grown and deepened. And as a lover of, of great books, I've come to recognize the incredible literary power that it possesses. I just can't believe that a simple farm boy from upstate New York with a third grade education could produce such a work with complexity and symbolism and theological soundness. If Joseph Smith wrote it, he must have been a literary genius the likes of Dickens or Tolstoy or Dante. It has that much depth to it. I know the Book of Mormon is true. If any of you listening out there have yet to come to that conclusion, those who have not yet joined our congregations, please do not be too quick to dismiss it. Make no mistake, it is literarily powerful. And this is coming from somebody who has a master's degree in English literature and has seriously studied the great books of our world. I assure you that it is not just a mere rehashing of biblical writings. And this is coming from somebody who deeply loves the Bible and has taught and studied it for 20 years as well. It has much to offer us by way of religious and theological understanding. I assure you that it's uplifting and it's inspiring and it's enlightening. And this is coming from somebody who has studied much of world religion and from someone who deeply respects other religions, who has visited the world's holy sites and come to recognize the beautiful truths in Judaism and Protestantism and Catholicism, Buddhism, Hinduism, and Islam. And yet, the Book of Mormon and the restored gospel it points to have enriched my life in a way that is impossible for me to express. It has brought me closer to my God and to my Savior. And therefore, in the sacred name of Jesus Christ, I bear my witness that the Book of Mormon is good and true and real. And with that, I want to thank all of you for going on this journey of faith with me this year. It has been an absolute privilege to share my thoughts and feelings with you about the teachings of the Book of Mormon. Thank you so much for the encouragement and the motivation to do my best to prepare insightful and helpful material. Thank you for all the kind and gracious comments 
and the chance to spend each week with you in the scriptures. What started out almost as a second thought has turned into something really amazing in my life. I love being able to share my passion for the scriptures with so many of you around the world. I hope and pray that your testimony of the Word of God, and particularly the Book of Mormon this year, has grown and strengthened. And many of you have asked if I plan to continue into next year with the Doctrine and Covenants. And I'm happy to tell you that, yes, my plan is to continue right on into the next amazing book of Scripture. I love the Doctrine and Covenants in church history just as much as I love the Book of Mormon. And I can't wait to share my thoughts and insights with you there as well. So let's keep right on teaching with power into the new year. Thank you for watching. And as always, get out there and teach with power.